The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, we are making sure that not only sort of what we're, what is in front of us we are assessing and addressing, but also we have more, you know, more than 200 active uh, national security agreements in place going back years. And so, um, again, going back to the premise that, you know, even a national security agreement entered into five, six, seven, eight years ago or more, we need to make sure those are being uh, followed. And so part of what one of the things our team does is monitor compliance. And so they will go out and knock on a door across the country and say, hey, uh, we're here, and um, the national security agreement uh, provides X, Y, and Z, and we want to we want to talk to you about that. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for July 6, 2023. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, is one of the most important national security offices that you have probably never heard of. Responsible for reviewing foreign investment in the United States for possible national security threats, its jurisdiction and scope of work has expanded dramatically in recent years, and may be on the verge of expanding once again as the Biden administration considers installing similar measures for outbound U.S. investment. To discuss, Lawfare contributing editor Brandon Van Grack and I sat down with Assistant Treasury Secretary for Investment Security Paul Rosen, whose office oversees the CFIUS process. This is the first of what we are calling The Regulators, a special series Lawfare is co-sponsoring with our friends at the law firm Morrison Forrester, where Brandon is a partner, featuring one-on-one discussions with the senior officials that are implementing our new era of economic statecraft. We discussed how the CFIUS process works in practice, how it's changed, and what challenges sit on the horizon, both for U.S. policymakers and the businesses they interact with. It's the Lawfare podcast for July 6th, Assistant Treasury Secretary Paul Rosen on the CFIUS process. Paul, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, what we're here to discuss, uh, CFIUS is what we're going to call it just for shorthand moving forward for those who may not be familiar with it. It's an institution that's really been around since the 1970s, but has gone through a lot of periods of change. And you are really coming in at the beginning or maybe the, the late beginning of one of those big periods of change. In 2018, we saw a law FIRMA get enacted that expands the jurisdiction of CFIUS, um, expands the responsibilities of CFIUS, establishes your position, of which you are the second person to hold that position. Tell us a little bit about how CFIUS has changed in these past few years, its mandate, its operations, this period that you're living through where CFIUS is becoming a much bigger, more integral part of our national security picture. What is the trajectory that you're seeing? What are the challenges you're facing in adapting to these new set of responsibilities? Yeah, thanks for that, and and thanks for having me. It's a it's a good question. Firma, in many respects, was really a high water mark for the evolution of CFIUS, and uh, one of the most significant uh, updates to the authority in decades. And 
uh, among um, some of the uh, the range of important uh, changes uh, and authorities that FIRMA enacted was really take CFIUS from a uh, investment screening regime that was sort of focused on this element of foreign control of certain U.S. businesses and elaborate on that, but also expand it uh, in a number of important ways, including to certain non-controlling investments and to some of the most sensitive U.S. businesses um, that we're concerned about, namely critical technology, critical infrastructure, and sensitive personal data businesses. It also, for the first time, created a real estate jurisdiction that didn't previously exist uh, that gives uh, the committee authority to review real estate transactions in certain close proximity to sensitive facilities, um, as well as establishes uh, a mechanism for the committee to not just wait for uh, filings, but to have a team that looks for quote-unquote non-notified filings, filings, transactions that uh, were within CFIUS's jurisdiction and uh, gives us the ability to go look at those going back years. So I'm more prone to hyperbole than Scott. And I frame that because, you know, I think that CFIUS is one of the most important regulatory bodies that most people, many people have never heard of before, and uh, at least in the national security foreign policy space. And I'm wondering if you could just give us a sense of sort of the scale and scope of its jurisdiction. So for example, and I know it might be an impossible task, but how many transactions, for example, like would potentially come within the purview of CFIUS and how many transactions do you actually review so people can really understand of the breadth of, of your potential uh, jurisdiction? Well, every year we put out a public report. Uh, it goes to Congress. It's publicized. It has a number of important statistics. And last year we've had we had hundreds of filings, uh, transactions that came before CFIUS, and there has been a steady upward climb since CFIUS's enactment. And you know, with that caseload has come an evolution in terms of staffing and growing our resources and growing the team to be able to address those because ultimately our job and our mission is focused on national security, but we also very much want to encourage foreign direct investment and make sure we are moving cases through the process, particularly those cases that do not present concerns and clearing and moving those cases forward. And so but the answer to your question is um, it's several hundred cases a year and growing. Well, so and to, to gently even press you on that, so that's the ones that you review that are actually formally before you. Can you even quantify the scope of potential transactions that would come, that could come within CIFI, that you could review, for example, that you could open an investigation on? And is it is it possible to quantify the number of transactions that you, you know, informally review sort of through a non-notified process? Well, the, the non-notified process was very much born coming out of FIRMA, and we have been working to advance and mature that process. And what that means is, you know, it, it's not our goal to have the non-notified team go after every single case that it uh, that could have come before us that CFIUS had jurisdiction over but didn't. We want to be smarter and more effective with our non-notified team to make a bigger impact. So the team is doing on the front end some important work like assessing what is the potential risk of this transaction before we bring it in, for example? And is this something that we want to bring in and expend significant and limited resources on? So it's hard to quantify the scope of what's out there because we're really trying to be more focused and tailored and not bring in every single case, but bring in cases that actually matter. 
So we have already gotten into this distinction between notified cases and non-notification cases. Let's take a step back for folks who may not be as familiar with the CFIUS process. Tell us a little bit about how the office does populate its cases. What is the process you take when you look at these, at least these two big families of cases that you're considering? And what are the steps that goes through? What is the role that you play in the interagency? What is the ultimate decision and, and, and determinations that you're reaching? What's the, the usual lifeline of a case that comes before you to give us a best, people a better sense of, of your office and the process it goes through? Yes, Scott, it's, it's a good question. And in, in both sort of both situations, whether it's not notified or uh, or coming in uh, voluntarily, there is often a sort of pre-discussion process that goes on. Counsel will either reach out and say, "We're planning to do a filing. Here's here's the nature of, of what we're dealing with." And in the non-notified space, similarly, we may reach out uh, to counsel or to the company and say, "Put us in touch with your counsel and have some informal discussions before a filing is made," because a filing. Uh, is a substantial uh, piece of work. Uh, a lot goes into that, and so we have discussions about what should come, you know, in on a filing, and, and counsel are well aware of that. Once a case is formally filed, there is a strict statutory timeline uh, that Congress has prescribed. There is a 45-day review period, which is an initial review uh, of a transaction. Uh, where we will do things like assess jurisdiction and take some initial steps uh, assigning uh, and working with a co-lead agency, right? There's nine members um, and oftentimes one, two, or three, usually two or three co-lead agencies and working with those agencies in that 45-day review process. It is still the case that the majority of transactions that are filed are cleared in the initial 45-day review or what's called a a sort of 30-day declaration period. And then if they're not, then we go into a 45-day investigation period where we're talking to the parties about a potential risk as we see it. We're working with the interagency to define and rigorously uh, scope what we view the risk is and then potentially moving into a mitigation agreement if we think that the case can be mitigated uh, or shifting into a prohibition posture, which can either be um, unwinding a closed transaction or prohibiting the closing of a future transaction, which is the authority um, that firm invested in the president. So when we when we talk about process in terms of how parties engage with CFIUS, you know, you, you talked about some of the the timelines and deadlines in terms of engaging, and you know, timelines come to an end. And, and oftentimes, I'm sure there's a scramble. And if you could talk about what you're seeing, especially with this increased volume in terms of how how not only are the parties dealing with this, but perhaps even advice in terms of how they can sort of expedite the process so that they can hit those timelines and deadlines. Yeah. I mean, as you point out, Brandon, these timelines are strict statutory timelines, and there's, there's few ways uh, around them, which makes the work at the end of those timelines, let's say the last 10 days, really important. And what do I mean by that? In those last 10 days, if the work isn't done, we're working very hard to meet that timeline and we're going to work up until midnight that that day to get things done. So we're working with the committee to make sure we're getting any final edits in a timely basis to say a national security agreement or or other materials. We're working to get those out to the parties as quickly as possible. But we're working on quick 24-hour turnarounds, edits to an NSA, changes from the committee. 
And so one of the things that I have sort of um, pushed my team on is to make sure that we are holding parties accountable to those timelines and not going to throw in the towel at the 11th hour and just expect that we'll, we'll have a party withdrawn refile and restart the clock. It's going to be more efficient for both the parties and the government to get these cases done to the extent we can, consistent with our national security obligations. And so, for example, on day 89 or day 88, if a board halfway around the world needs to sign off on a national security agreement, they should be prepared because everybody knows what the statutory clock is. And you know it is not uncommon for us to hear, well, we can't get the right people together. It's, it's the middle of the night over there. These are known timelines. And we are going to work hard on the government side to make sure we are being efficient and effective as much as we can. And sometimes the government um, is to blame for the delay. But I also want to make sure that the parties understand what the timelines are and that they have in place their processes to get done, even working up until the last possible minute of a clock. Just to, to clarify one more th- aspect of this for folks, the non-notification versus notification groups, what are the different incentives facing corporations to choose to say, I'm going to voluntarily come to CFIUS before I conclude a deal? These are the notification family that we're describing as we're describing them versus others who say, I'm not going to go through this process, but maybe they pop up on your radar later. You approach them and say, no, guys, we need to look at this. Let's talk about this. Maybe even after the deal has closed. What are the incentives legally? What is the different regime that's applied to those two different groups? And why may some companies choose to come to you beforehand and others not? It's a great question. And you know, the voluntary nature of CFIUS, by and large, is quite unique for a regulatory program. And th- there's a couple of incentives to, uh, that parties would want to come come to us before a closing. Uh, one of the most significant is if they get through the CFIUS process and we clear it, they're given safe harbor that we're not going to come back and look at them for this transaction again. And conversely, if they don't come to us and we have jurisdiction, we can come look at that transaction anytime in the future. 10, 15, 20 years later. And so from a business certainty and predictability standpoint, most businesses don't want to put themselves in a position if they're getting advice that this actually could have jurisdiction, uh, CFIUS could have jurisdiction to come back and potentially be unwound. That's that that's sort of antithetical to, I think, what businesses are trying to accomplish uh, when it comes to these kinds of transactions. The only other thing I'll note is there is a category of mandatory filings where in certain circumstances, parties are required to file before a transaction. And in those cases, obviously, failing to do so could result in some penalties. You mentioned a bit your ability to address perceived national security issues and blocking mitigation. I think we're going to talk about that. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the C in CFIUS, the committee, because as a perceived sort of regulatory body, that is unique in that there are multiple agencies and departments. And I think it'd be helpful to, to perhaps hear two things, which is how many how many members of the committee, both formally and informally, are part of it? And also, how does that engagement work overall? Because the fact that there has to be consensus for certain decisions, I would assume that can uh, be a challenge. Yes, it is a committee. It's made up of nine permanent members. Um, We have other sort of non-voting members as well, like the Director of National Intelligence, because we rely on uh, intelligence and threat information in, in doing our work on the classified side. And the way that CFIUS operates uh, is generally through consensus, which means at each step in the process, we are working with the nine permanent members to reach consensus about every step we take. 
um, and that may be on the identification of a risk, on the articulation of that risk, and certainly on the resolution of the transaction, how we think it should be disposed of. And it, it, it can work quite well um, because we have different members with different expertise that they bring to the table um, depending on the transaction. But of course, with nine members can come nine different views. And so there is a lot of work that we do and Treasury as chair performs to try to um, work with agencies and address issues and concerns. And it takes, it takes up a lot of time, but ultimately, um, you know, from my perspective, it reaches generally the right outcome. And so, uh, and then the, the only other thing I'll note on the committee process is even though we have nine members, um, we have the explicit authority and do in fact bring in other non-members when there are national security issues impacting other agencies to benefit from that expertise. So we're not limited to just the expertise in the federal government from those nine member agencies. So we've already talked about the sense of risk, which is really at the fulcrum, the hinge on which all of CFIUS's work is predicated, this idea of how do we identify a national security risk in different environments. Of course, that's a fact-specific analysis. It can be very contextual. But can you give us a sense about how CFIUS and its partners in other agencies go about thinking about risk, evaluating? Is it about the country that a company is operating if it's a private company? Is it different where it's a state-owned enterprise? Is it different in certain sectors? What are some of the big flags for you of saying these are big risks? And where do they come from? Some are defined in statute to some extent, but that's more defining the jurisdiction of CFIUS. Within that jurisdiction, how do you weight different sorts of threats and how to respond and mitigate them? Well, I think, Scott, the best way to sort of frame this discussion is to talk about what the statute requires us to do because it is both clear and quite public. And our mandate is to analyze the threats, vulnerabilities, and consequences to national security. And, uh, and by unpacking that, I think we can get at your question. So on the threat side, we look at the foreign acquire. Who's doing the buying? What do we know about that person or entity? Um, what do we know about them from intelligence reporting? What do we know about them from the questions that we ask companies? Uh, what do we know about their commercial relationships? What do we know about where they operate? Um, and so we really do a deep dive into who is doing the buying? What do we know about them from a threat perspective? Secondly, we look at the vulnerability. What's being bought? Is it something that we care about? Does it have a lot of sensitive US personal data? Is it sensitive technology? Do they have sensitive contracts with an element of the government? And then we put those two things together. And really, it's a sliding scale. You know, What do we know about the person buying? And what are they buying? And what is the consequence to national security? And it's a very fact-intensive analysis, and that's why no two transactions are the same. And that's why the work of CFIUS is so laborious in many instances, because we do dive deep into these issues to to assess the risk. And then and then we get together as a committee and 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 determine, okay, what is the risk here in a very specific way? Not a high-level way, but the specific risk here is that. A may acquire B and C may occur. And that is how we, um, that's how we get at our risk argument to determine where we're going to go from there. And again, those are in the cases that present risk. It's very important to note that not all cases uh, present risk. And um, again, we clear the majority of, of, uh, of cases right now in that initial 30 or 45 day stage. In terms of that risk assessment, with respect to 
enterprises that are owned by a foreign government or or sovereign wealth funds. How, how do you assess that risk? How do you separate or consider that that fund or that enterprise from the foreign government? So I, I guess, Brandon, what I would go back to is sort of the, the threat analysis that I talked about because you could insert you know various other foreign acquirers into that sentence, and I think the answer would be the same, which is we look at those factors. And so, you know, if there's a if there's a foreign government connected foreign acquirer, you know, we're looking at the relationship uh, with that government. We're looking at who has access to the to the potential U.S. business information, and and again, that's why every case is different. And so. Uh, but at the end of the day, we are, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about, um, really redoubling our efforts on due diligence when it comes to the foreign acquire, whoever or whatever that may be. There's also an authority within firma, I believe. Maybe it's in the right, but I think it's in firma itself about accepted investors. Can you tell us a little bit about how that authority has been used and particularly how it fits into these sorts of, of frameworks? Is it entirely a carve-out or is it a, a weighted kind of variable in this formula you're applying? Yeah. So you're exactly right, Scott, that in Firma, Congress um, established a framework where um, CFIUS through a process could determine that certain investors from certain countries would not be subject to some of the more onerous requirements uh, that Firma set up. And uh, I just um, I just approved the um, the designation, the final designation of um, New Zealand, and thereby we have the five eyes um, as uh, accepted foreign states now, which uh, creates some room for certain investments to happen, and that's that's a that's part of the threat assessment, right? Um, that's a judgment that through Congress's um, prescription and law. We have made. Um, we have worked with these countries. We've worked with them on their um, legal regime, inbound screening. We've worked with them on implementation to make sure that they are executing on their uh, on their laws, which is really important. And I think part of the motivation there was as Firma ramps up the United States as inbound screening through CFIUS, through resources through jurisdiction and otherwise, we don't want our adversaries to go and try to get control of this critical technology through our allies and setting up an incentive process for our allies to establish similar regimes and execute on those was part of that vision. So enforcement has been has been a focus of, uh, of your time uh, at Treasury and, and Overseeing CFIUS, and I want to spend spend some time talking about enforcement, uh, and in particular, get a sense of not just what your strategy is, but but what your focus is. What types of violations are you talking? Are, are you thinking about in prioritizing? So, Brandon, I think when you think about any regulatory and uh, program, particularly those that are based on national security requirements, you have to think about and have a strong component that ensures compliance with the program. Because if the goals of the program are to ensure the protection of national security, uh, we're only as good as the making sure that our regulations are being followed and the agreements that are being entered into are followed. And so let me give you an example of that, and then I'll talk about a little bit about what we've done. So if if we identify a risk and we clear a case subject to a mitigation, which is through what's called a national security agreement, those agreements are meant to mitigate and resolve the, any identified national security risk. 
And it's essentially a contract with the parties to make sure that they are going to take steps A, B, C, D, and E. And if they take those steps, then that resolves our concern. And after we finish the case and everybody signs the national security agreement, we need to make sure that those obligations are being followed. Similarly, if we have mandatory filing requirements, Congress set forth those requirements. They set forth the policy reasons why Congress thought those were important. And so we need to make sure that transaction parties are abiding by those. And so post firma, we were really focused on establishing our processes, building our offices, building personnel and the like. And one of the things that I was focused on doing and working on in my first 100 days was establishing a public enforcement and penalty guidelines so that uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's important to uh, share with the business community how we are going to think about our expectations of them and how we're going to think about violations. Number two, um, one of the things that I, I asked the team to do as soon as I came in was when we see a violation of our laws or regulations, I don't know what the outcome of that violation is going to be, but we need to analyze it on a regular basis and determine through reviewing these guidelines and the aggravating mitigating factors, do we need to issue a penalty? Do we need to take some other action uh, and the like? And so that was the, the vision for those guidelines and I think the reason and we've been moving forward. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And so in terms of you mentioned, you know, one area where there could be a violation are, are these national security agreements when parties have uh, agreed to certain measures to to mitigate uh, perceived national security risks. The others are something you you mentioned before, which is there are sometimes mandatory filings. And and I'm curious if there's a priority between the two in terms of your own investigations and enforcement actions, whether there's one that that tends to be sort of you have more open investigations on or sort of you view as sort of a, a greater issue. Look, they're, they're both important, but because they both go to compliance with national security obligations, right? On the mandatory side, you know, you're dealing with issues like certain investments by foreign governments, uh, as well as certain investments into really sensitive, critical technologies. On the national security agreement side, it's what I mentioned a moment ago, which is if we're all going to agree that the only way that we're going to resolve this risk is through doing these three things, we got to make sure they're being done. And so I want to make sure that we have a, a team and a process that doesn't leave anything on the table when it comes to both of those issues and more. So any part of enforcement, a big 
part of the process and the thing hanging over it is the stick, the penalty. What sort of penalties have you all been assessing? What is the range of toolkits on penalties? We've talked about unwinding as being one sort of maybe more severe and unique penalty, but of course that's part of a big spectrum. And how do you think about those different toolkits? What, how have you been using them? So Scott, there's a range of remedies that we have, as you allude to, um, you know, from reopening a case in circum- certain circumstances to issuing uh, civil penalties to you know reopening and unwinding, for example. And we are really taking a case-by-case analysis to um, each violation. And again, I go back to our uh, our enforcement and penalty guidelines because we're looking at uh, the aggravating and mitigating factors in there to make a case-by-case determination. And look, the, it is the case that the vast majority of transaction parties intend to and do, in fact, comply with their obligations, right? And so, but we are, you know, we are making sure that not only sort of what we're what is in front of us, we are assessing and addressing, but also we have more, you know, more than two hundred active uh, national security agreements in place going back years, and so. Um, again, going back to the premise that you know, even a national security agreement entered into five, six, seven, eight years ago or more, we need to make sure those are being uh, followed. And so, part of what one of the things our team does is monitor compliance. And so, they will go out and knock on a door across the country and say, "Hey, uh, we're here, and um, the national security agreement uh, provides X, Y, and Z, and we want to we want to talk to you about that." You mentioned one of the sticks that are available are penalties, and there are two publicly reported penalties. And so my question is, is, are there more penalties coming? Well, I guess that will depend on the conduct of transaction parties, Brandon, right? So we are, again, we're going to do the work um, and follow the facts. But I, I can assure you that if there are violations, we're going to do the analysis in a robust and systemic way. Um, I've said before, um, we have issued penalties under these guidelines. Uh, we are assessing uh, actively assessing um, other potential violations, and it's going to be important to make those public on a on a periodic basis. Another part of this process, if I alluded to, is the information gathering. You need a lot of information to do these evaluations. You knock on a door, you get some degree of voluntary cooperation. Um, but I think anybody who's touched law enforcement in any environment knows you don't always get the amount of cooperation that you may want or need to do an accurate assessment. For conventional law enforcement agencies, that's where subpoenas come in, answer warrants and other sorts of processes. You all have a subpoena authority, but it's one that has been used in somewhat unusual ways, thought of a little bit differently. How do you go about using that as a tool or other tools to get maybe less voluntary compliance so you don't have to rely just on voluntary compliance and disclosures to make these assessments? Yeah, the look the the Defense Production Act gives us subpoena authority, administrative subpoena authority. the The way that CFIUS is different than some of the other regulatory and law enforcement bodies that you identified is the the incentive structures that we talked a bit about, which is parties want to get safe harbor. They want to get through CFIUS if they're within CFIUS's jurisdiction because they want the certainty. They want the predictability, understandably so. And there is a set of incentives on quickly, fully, and adequately responding to CFIUS's questions that may not exist in other contexts. And so we get a lot of voluntary cooperation. And one example of that is beneficial ownership. Uh, we really dig into the foreign acquirer and who owns 
the companies behind the acquire, who the individual investors are. And we, by and large, get that information voluntarily because companies are here to give us the information we deem necessary to assess the national security risk and get through our process. Uh, maybe one final piece on enforcement, which is um, I have a bias from my own background when I think enforcement, I think the Department of Justice. And so I'm curious if you can talk about how you engage with the Department of Justice, whether through enforcement or with penalties, just sort of how that works. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, Brandon, your old section, the National Security Division, is our sort of key partner uh, when it comes to CFIUS matters. We work closely with them on a range of CFIUS issues, and they are really redoubling their efforts and their resources on these issues as well. And so I see them as a key partner in this effort. You know, one of the ways that we work with them is is not just on sort of our analysis of our laws and regulations and authorities, but there are provisions that violate our um, our statute related to material misstatements or omissions, for example. And you know, as a former prosecutor, that material misstates, misstatements and omissions can be civil violations, but they can also be criminal violations. And so to the extent that we um, are concerned that we are getting uh, misstatements uh, that rise to the level of intentionality and materiality and other factors that would warrant the Department of Justice looking at those, um, we engage with them. So another interesting step your office has taken in the last few months um, is issuing some clarifications about how certain practices fit within uh, your vision of the enforcement guidelines, some clarifying guidelines. The springing rights, I think, is one of the most recent examples. Tell us a little about what's led you to begin making these clarifications. Is this a practice your office is pursuing more often, more deliberately? Is it you see it as another tool you're trying to develop more? And tell us how that fits given the retroactive scope of CFIUS's enforcement authority. What does this mean for past cases or past deals that may have relied upon a colorably valid prior interpretation that's now been kind of ruled out by your clarifying guidance? How do you go about thinking about those cases? I love the term colorably valid. Colorably valid. Colorably valid. I'm a diplomatic lawyer by training, so we like we like ambiguities. It's a, I'm glad you brought this up. One of the things I've been trying to do through the enforcement guidelines, through um, various public events, is to demystify a bit of the CFIUS black box because it's important to share with transaction parties, with the business, with the public about what we do and why we do it because ultimately, the, to the extent that we can share more of that information, the, the easier and more efficient all of our jobs are going to be. We're going to get more of the information we need on day one on a filing if people understand um, what we're focused on and why we're focused on it. And so um, as part of that process, if we see a practice that we think is inconsistent with regulations, we think it's important to uh, go out and make that public and say, look, here's what the regulations say. Um, it's clear that certain members of the bar or transaction parties have been interpreting it this way. For an avoidance of doubt, the Department of the Treasury and CFIUS believes that this is the correct reading of the law. And uh, the reason to do that is to put folks on notice and to a degree of fairness um, and give them um, the opportunity to understand how we view, um, in this case, 
the definition uh, of completion date, which is, you know, this, this is in the weeds, but it's important. And to your retroactivity point, I think part of the reason that we wanted to come out and make this stuff public on a website is on a going forward basis, have folks be on notice so that, you know, perhaps if we try to do something in the past, you know, we would be in a discussion about whether it's fair to to penalize them or or do something if they thought that that was an appropriate course of action. But in our view, in this particular instance, the regulations are quite clear and we wanted to make it clear for transaction parties what our expectations are. Maybe we can spend a moment on, on that with respect to springing rights and actually talk about what that what that clarification was. Sure. I mean, so I think what we've been seeing is transaction parties structure deals and filings with CFIUS that involve an initial transfer of ownership interest via equity and an accompany side letter or other contractual arrangement uh, that would delay the vesting of rights granted in transaction documents or government documents, whether they're covered investment or control rights, until CFIUS completes action. And we've seen filings where parties have interpreted and taken the position that a side letter or arrangement means that the 30-day period for submitting a mandatory filing is, is measured from the date on which CFIUS eventually clears rather than the date of the transfer of equity. And so the regulation is quite clear um, that it's it's the first of those two things. And um, so without getting into sort of, you know, even even further weeds, there's this is our attempt to make clear we see the regulations as being quite clear in this regard and to to try to share with the transaction and investment community uh, that view. Is there and and fair enough when we talk springing rights there there are weeds that that we start going down and Scott will make sure we don't get too far down in the dirt. But in terms of understanding your your as you say the driving force was your interpretation of of what you believe it says. What is I'm curious if you can articulate whether there's the perception that there was a harm associated with that and what that is, or if this was simply a misunderstanding or misapplication that you believe needed to be because because I do think those could be distinguishing, and I'm curious how you view that. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad you used the word interpretation because I don't actually think, um, and if I and if I said that, I want to be clear. Like I don't think that this is a new or different or even unique interpretation. This is what the regulation says. They provide that the completion date occurs as soon as any ownership interest, including a contingent equity interest, is conveyed, assigned, delivered, etc. So it's quite clear in that regard. And so we wanted to make sure um, that that was clear. Now, to your question about why it matters and 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 what it means, if Congress set up a system where certain mandatory filings needed to come in 30 days before the close of transaction because of the sensitive nature of the uh, of the technology or the like, it is important for us to provide fidelity to that mandate. And the other the other aspect of this is one of the things that we often see is transactions that are structured this way close in terms of the equity goes in. Um, so that piece of it is done. Maybe the deal is not fully closed, but we are then in a situation where we have to take steps to maybe get that equity out or unwind if it's not a transaction that uh, we're comfortable with from a risk perspective. And so that's exactly why the mandatory filing requirements want parties to come in first 
before that equity uh, interest uh, goes in. As you indicated, um, this is CFIUS making that clarification of its interpretation. But there were inevitably then- Not interpretation. I'm sorry, I keep keep using the word. uh, But my question though is inevitably that means there were transactions um, that where these springing rights occurred or may have occurred that did not follow or do not follow the clarification description that 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 Sifis just issued, and my question is: is do those parties have you know should they be concerned if they're the what how they viewed that or how they acted is obviously now different from from what has now been clarified. So uh, I'm going to give you an unsatisfactory answer, which is uh, we get to look at the facts and circumstances of each transaction. Um, that said, be forward looking. We want to encourage compliance, and we're not looking to be punitive. But we're going to look at you know each case you know as the facts present. Uh, but as a general matter, we want to be we want to put these things up so that we can notify parties about our expectations. And they're you know they may be able to argue that there was ambiguity in their mind before, but they certainly can't argue it now. So when Cepheus kind of came on the scene in the 1970s, it was inspired a little bit by certain practices of other countries, but kind of a unique entity, and has developed in a way that now has an institutional role that is emulated by a number of other countries, a number of other allies. And that's not entirely an accident. To some extent, the United States has, as a policy measure, encouraged partners to at least think about certain types of foreign investment and foreign involvement in their economy as concerns. If you think about particularly China, telecommunications, things like that in that space. Tell us a little bit about how your office interacts with foreign government parallels, both in terms of you know, encouraging or engaging foreign governments as they set up, go about setting up policies and institutions like CFIUS, but also the day-to-day operation of those groups, sharing information, sharing concerns about particular investments. Is there a lot of multilateral coordination or is it relatively siloed within the U.S. context and those relationships happen at a different level? No, the, you've really hit on an important aspect of what CFIUS does, Scott, which is we have a whole office uh, set up to engage with partners and allies on CFIUS. And that that work ranges from helping them to draft their own legislation to explaining the policy reasons of why we think they should be um, creating or executing on an inbound screening program. It includes detailed tabletop exercises to how we run a case. And we have teams that are regularly engaged with um, our foreign counterparts We've helped countries put in place more than 15 uh, of their own laws uh, over the years. And and we do, to the extent we can, share information, uh, intelligence information or other information as permitted by law. Because again, all of this goes back to as, as, as CFIUS expands its jurisdiction, its resources, its reach, we want to make sure that other countries aren't a beacon for malign foreign investment. So CFIUS is is one tool the U.S. government has in terms of protecting and projecting its national security interests among many tools. But one of the, it seems like, newest tools the U.S. government is about to obtain is with respect to outbound investment from the United States as opposed to inbound investment. And uh, I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of what you envision or what you think that is going to look like and also a sense of timing when you think that tool is going to be deployed? So 
the, as it's been reported and discussed publicly, the administration is considering uh, a regulatory program around uh, certain outbound U.S. investments um, in certain sectors uh, of concern based on the national security uh, imperative of making sure that U.S. dollars and know-how and expertise do not go to countries of concern into sectors uh, that can develop the next generation technology that can directly be used against us from a national security perspective. Uh, think military, think intelligence, think surveillance capabilities. And so what we are uh, contemplating is a narrow, focused, national security tailored tool that gets at this issue because we have export controls that can get at items uh, and other goods uh, going overseas to places we don't want them to go. We have sanctions uh, as a tool, but we don't have a tool that can capture uh, very well you know, U.S. investment dollars and sort of the special know-how and expertise that goes along with that. And that is something that the administration is actively considering. Um, and of course, Congress has been considering something similar for some time. So you don't want to announce on the podcast that today is the day it goes into effect? The administration is actively considering <laughs> such an approach, Brandon. Thank you. To the extent you can... Can you talk to us a little bit about how you think about, and the administration might be thinking about, enforcing these sorts of rules? Because it strikes me as a very different toolkit available. When you're talking about inbound investments in the United States, you're talking about corporations, money, property that is within the U.S. jurisdiction, within U.S. control. It's more limited when you're talking about outbound investment. Um, you may have control of the investor, the person sending the funds, um, but the actual deal, the actual transaction, harder to unwind, I suspect, which is such a seminal sort of unique aspect of the CFIUS framework. Can you give a sense of the lessons learned, what aspects of the CFIUS framework might transfer, which ones won't, and what, what's being substituted in How about how we might approach those sorts of issues? Or is it all still in process and not ready to be revealed yet? Yeah, l largely the latter, uh, which is um, I'm not going to get ahead of the deliberative process, but in, in assessing such a program, there are a lot of lessons from CFIUS. Um, CFIUS has been effective in many ways, but CFIUS is also a labor-intensive process. Screening, fact-intensive, consensus, all of these things um, that go into CFIUS and make it quite a, an important, powerful tool. And I think all of those lessons um, will go into the assessment of um, a potential outbound program if, um, if it's enacted. One of the one of the questions then, and um, you'll obviously rein me back in if I go too far, is well, what do we mean by you know U.S. outbound investment in terms of the definition of what a U.S. entity is, and in some of the regimes that you've described, CFIUS sanctions, export controls, it typically has quite a broad uh, definition, and is that something that you would expect sort of to be mirrored in in this in this new scheme? Yeah, well, Brandon, as you could guess, I'm not going to get into definitions here. Um, but what I will say among the kinds of um, sectors 
that we're um, thinking about when it comes to what is most critical to our national security. The kinds of things we're thinking about are advanced semiconductors and quantum computing and artificial intelligence uh, and the like. And so the the work is very much ongoing, and um, I think I'll leave it at that. One last question on this regard, an aspect that has been publicly reported, uh, I believe, as far as I'm aware, and the fact I'm aware of it suggests it has been, is that in efforts being made to coordinate this policy rollout with allies, uh, there's an element of coordination uh, involved. Um, Tell us a little bit why that's part of this policy package. Why is that important in this context? And what would an ideal multilateral rollout look like? What's the objective in terms of the degree of coordination along a particular issue set for for an outbound regime? So as a general matter, putting this policy aside, coordination um, with allies, multilateral action, is particularly in the national security space, um, is often much more effective and robust um, when you're doing things together with partners, whether it's because of backfill concerns uh, or the like. And I think, um, well, I'm not going to get into um, our deliberations with allies. You know, of, it's a matter of public record that there have been statements um, of support for this concept coming out of the G7 uh, leaders meeting. The president of the um, economic, um, the, the the EC, uh, the European Commission, has spoken out publicly about this issue, and so it is an issue that is on the minds of our allies as well, and not just us. And um, and so, uh, you know, from a from a regulatory perspective, if this is something that goes forward, having multilateral support um, is an important piece. Well, you have given us. A great deal of your time to pepper you with questions. We really appreciate it. But we also now know at this point we are just about out of time. Um, let me close by just saying thank you very much for joining us here on the Lawfare Podcast. And maybe we'll have the opportunity to lure you back once we have an outbound investment uh, regime, if and when we have one, to pepper you with more questions. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Brandon. It's good to be here. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pacha Howell and produced by Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.